From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 177, and today I'm joined by filmmaker Jacob Turney. Jacob's made films like The Trotsky, Good Neighbors, Pregoland, as well as directed a bunch of television on shows like Mr. D and Letterkenny. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down via isolation to watch 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'm Jeremy, and I've seen this film a few times, but not in quite some time. And I'm here with... I'm I Jacob Journey. No, no worries. You, you pointed at me on the Zoom, so I felt oh, like good. I talk. Uh, yes, hi, Jacob Journey here, reporting for duty. First and time 2001 watcher. So what what has happened or transpired in your in your life that has kept you from this movie? I, I think it's like I, it's probably ninety percent coincidence because I I've seen. Every, I believe almost every single other Stanley Kubrick movie with the exception of, is it Paths of Glory? I haven't yeah. seen Paths of Glory. I just I've watched seen, that recently. I've, okay. So I've seen like everything from the killing up to, I felt like what happened to me was as a kid, I liked Stanley Kubrick. I love The Shining and Dr. Strangelove is still probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, it's great. And of course I had like a relationship with Clockwork Orange, but though it confused me. And then Full Metal Jacket and then Eyes Wide Shut. And that was the first one that I saw in a theater as an adult. And I mean, I think I was 19, but like close enough to an adult. And I felt like I couldn't unsee or unlearn <laughs> that movie. <laughs> That's what a great they, way to describe that movie. Yeah, it was like, I was like, oh, this is like a fascist, misogynist psychopath who's very good at making movies. And I couldn't, so I, I just, it limited my ability to go back. Although I think a month ago, I watched Dr. Strangelove again. And I, it's such a masterpiece. It's such a great movie. And I think it's very notable that it is a movie with no women in it, which is why maybe it skirts right past the stuff that really, really bugs me about, not bugs me, that straight up bums me out about Kubrick. Um, Because I can remember watching like Lolita and thinking it was amazing. and, and, And then, you know, it was like, it was really kind of like eyes wide shut, triggering memories of Clockwork Orange. And I was like, wait, what? What's happening here? Like, what is everything about with this dude? I remember watching, like, I had a VHS tape of The Shining, and at the and this is before DVDs, and at the end of it, it had like the making of on the on the disc. And I, have you seen that? Scarier than the movie. Scarier than the movie. And if you've seen that, and you see how he talks and deals with Shelley Duvall, you're like, and at first yeah. I'm like, oh, he's just the cra- he's just all directors are like that, and directors are. But I'm like, oh, no, as as I get older and I start directing myself, I'm like, oh, that's not how you're. 
I mean, that's unacceptable. No, I mean, like I knew, like, you know, I was a child actor. I started when I was four years old. So like, I've been on a lot of sets and I remember that behind the scenes is one of the first ones I remember. And I remember that. And I also remember, I love Jack Nicholson so much and the way that he would deal with it. I also can remember the way adults would deal with bad behavior towards me as a child on sets where they were like, well, sometimes stuff happens. You're like, no. So much, so much like under the curtain and under the rug where it's just like, yeah, that's yeah, it's just like, set. It's the, 70s, it's the 80s. There aren't really labor laws. He's a genius. We're going to let it go. Well, there was oh. that Venn diagram of like, you're allowed to be as terrible as you were brilliant. And if you fit in that middle, people, you, you got away with murder. Uh, not anymore, I, thankfully. I feel like Kubrick, well, I mean, I don't know, man. From what I hear, David Fincher functions this way. Like, from what I hear, there's a lot of people that are, have gotten away with bad behavior. I think hopefully the tide is turning on this stuff. Yeah. And I think the stuff I should say about Fincher, what I've heard, is that he, uh, it's not so much abusive as the way he adopted the style which is something I personally loathe of like 58 takes of anything, like of like beating performances out of actors as if there's some stupid sheep that need to be exhausted before they're creative. Like just stuff that I've hated my whole life. And to yeah. me, as a, somebody who grew up an actor and now as a director, it's just like, that's the opposite of how you get good work out of people. Like, yeah. The, and Kubrick was the, the same. Like, Kubrick like was famous for that one shot in eyes wide shut for making Tom Cruise, like walk down the street 170 times or something. Right? I feel like the, the, one of the, the scenes that I remember the most from eyes wide shut is that last, one of the last scenes in it with Tom Cruise and Sidney Pollock playing pool or at the pool table. And they both look like they want to die. They're so they, like half the time they take these sighs before they say their lines. And you're like, I can feel take 64 on this. Like, I know how many times you've said this line and you're, you're done with it. And yeah. it's part of what makes that movie. So beyond so problematic, but also so like, Oh, this is the movie of like an isolated psychopath who hasn't been in the world. Like he doesn't understand what sex is. He doesn't understand how human beings talk to each other. So I'm actually cautiously optimistic about 2001 where there shouldn't be a lot of uh, human beings or sex. Maybe I'll find that it's the one that I like, but it is weird that like I've seen all his other shit and not this. Like yeah. it didn't, it was the, my one like stoner skip over in high school. Well, Which like I just is didn't... kind of a shame without spoiling anything. This is probably, and I should say, I, I don't need to say probably. I think I probably have experienced this movie this way. I think this is a great movie to watch high. If you could watch oh. it like high oh, with like, worry, a big screen. Oh, okay, worry, great. We're good. <laughs> oh, oh, let's not, let's not miss words here. I have like oh. a pot of tea prepared. I have half a joint and I have like the remains this much scotch. And that's what's going to be entertaining. Maybe an ice cream sandwich too, depending on how it goes. Yeah, that's good. That's a good spot. Yeah. So uh, that you're going to be fine. Yeah. And this is one that it's funny. My son was always, I have a, an 11 year old son who is a cinephile and he's like, what are you watching? And I told him, he's like, why is it called 2001? I'm like, well, it take, takes place. He's like, when was it made? And I was like, well, it took place in, it was made in 1970. He's like, that's weird. I was like, well, it's about, anyway, it's, I was like, he's like, what's it about? I'm like, to watch Back to the Future Part 2 and realizing that like, we should have flying scooters by now, but we and, do not. Jaws 17. Yeah, where the hell's my hoverboards? <laughs> God damn it. Uh, and those awesome jackets that like just fit to you. Um, but he was asking about it. I said, look, when we see it, bud, I mean, we can watch it in the screening room and that's great. But I'm like, if they're playing it at the Cinesphere or playing like that's where I want yeah. him to watch it for the first time. I'm like, 
bigger screen, best sound. Because that's one of the places they continually play it on. And I've never, I don't think I've ever seen this movie in a theater. Uh, so I know uh, that I've dodged seeing this movie in a theater because it was post my eyes wide shut. I remember it playing at the Royal at some point. And, and I was like, I'm not doing that. I think I'd also just done um, Dark Side of Oz. And I was like, I'm not going <laughs> to trick which was Dark Side of Oz was a terrible experience for me as somebody that does not like Pink Floyd and like realized halfway through the movie, I was like, oh my God, I'm not stoned anymore. This is a fucking nightmare. Like, and also, this fucking did, album for the second, it was when they started the album for the second time. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. Ooh, I didn't, yeah. And what's funny is friends of mine in college, we would do this thing where we would get high and we would just try random albums with Oz and be like, yeah, if you're high enough, any album works. Automatic for the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's like <laughs> anything. This, anything works. It's like if you're high enough, you can like justify. Oh, this lyric there means that, this. There is that one. There is that one crazy stoner moment though when like when money kicks in as soon as it goes to color. I feel like it's all built around that cue. The rest of the cues are like, Wah. but yeah, like you, that one cue, you're like, uh, and you're lucky also because it's early enough that I'm still very high. Yeah, and that that's enough to to sell you and go. Oh, the rest of this almost, is but not quite. Not, not 45 minutes in when you're like, oh, I'm not stoned anymore. And I'm listening. I'm watching a movie on mute with a shitty album playing. Like, this is just a, yeah, I felt like, and I felt there was a part of me that felt like it was the same crowd of 2001 or something. Like they wanted, I was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I know what you like. I was like, I like to smoke pop, but I don't like your version of pop movies. I want to watch every opening sequence from every final destination movie when I get stoned. I want to watch every single like first massive accident from every final destination. <laughs> That's my dream. If someone right. could mash that up into a feature film, I would die. I feel like happen. you have a friend on YouTube who might've put that together for you. If you look for it, you know what? It's funny that you say that. Cause like I've looked for, I don't know if you know this or not, but I do because of quarantine final <laughs> destination three and four are not available in English in Canada. You can't even buy them. If someone who listens to your podcast can point me in the right direction beyond like, I don't, I'd rather not do it illegally, but it's only the dubbed version. And I know this because I have bought Final Destination 3 and realized I bought a version I can't undub. Like I can't get the, even subtitles. I wouldn't care. I'm here to watch a roller coaster crash. Like I don't, I almost don't care, but like the dubbing, and I know this is like English speaking person privilege because I know a lot of people in the world, most people watch movies dubbed. I hate it. It makes me crazy. Yeah. Um, but so I've gone on YouTube, like looking for, and they have versions of it, but they don't have exactly what I want, which is especially like that, 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 that highway pile up from two into the right into the roller coaster of three and right into, I don't even remember what, four. Oh, NASCAR, I believe is four. I probably not. The I, right I think I, I don't think I saw four. I I'll, I'll, was an idiot. I'll believe you. I love your, yeah. I think the other reason, I think 2001 is one of those black holes that if you're, if you miss something of Kubrick, it's not uncommon because it's probably also his longest, if not one of his long, I mean, he made a lot of long movies. Oh, it also, it advertises itself as boring. Like it advertises itself as slightly ponderous, right? You're like, it's a lot of, I know how it ends. You know, like I know enough about it that I feel like I've like pop culturally experienced it. But I do, I'm happy to, I want to experience it for real because I'm, I, you know, I am usually a completist, uh, but I do, I did, it didn't feel like such a big black hole because I feel like it's so present and so like, you know what I mean? It's so part of like a narrative language that, and I, and I, I feel like I get what's 
the narrative language of it is, even though I haven't, you know, actually sat through the whole thing. All right. So I'll be curious. That'd be my question. When we come back is like, what, what was it versus what did you think it would be based on all of these little pop culture moments you you were aware of? Yeah, I'm excited to see. Like, I'm excited to get beyond just the giant baby in the sky. You know? All right. Well, that, that's a good place for us to dive in. Let's Excellent. do it. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So we just finished. And... And I mean, I'll tell you, I'm glad, I'm glad you made me do this. Cause I don't think, I don't know if I'd have even gotten to space. <laughs> I think after the monkey sequence, I might've been like, you know what? No, especially knowing there was like seven to eight more hours to come. I think I might've just bailed. Yeah. There's not enough drugs. Uh, surprisingly, it's not as long as you think, because it's got like a two and a half no, hour runtime. Yeah, but because it's like, it's really, I mean, the credits kick in at 2.20. And if you and if you don't stick around for those uh, intermissions, it's really, it really just clocks in a little over two hours. Uh, and I mean, and for a movie, which if you, do, like, if you decided to tell me what it's about, like, there's 20 minutes of information in that two and a half hours. Like maximum, right? Like there's no information. When I realized at the end of the, like, I guess what is the first act? Like the, this movie made the writer in me die. Like this is like, I was like, oh God, this is such an ugly writing bit. But like when I realized that the four, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I feel like I might've missed some stuff, but the end of oh. the first bit, when the, before they go to like 18 months later, I was like, all of that is to tell me there's an alien spaceship buried on another planet. Like that whole, is, is that right? That's all that I needed to learn from that, right? Yeah, and that there's the, the, the big, only other piece of pandemic. information, I think. Is, is there one, like, isn't everything else fake? Here's the other thing that I totally forgot about. And I, cause I haven't seen this movie in a while. Like I forgot about all that shit with that doctor guy coming up. And all, I forgot that it didn't just like go from the monkey and the bone right into Dave and Hal. I forgot all about. Well, that's what I mean. Like that weird bit that takes so that takes up so much space at the beginning. I think you only it's you. The only thing you learn is that there's an alien thing buried under. And you riddle me this because I feel like you see this movie before. Is it is it the moon or is it Titan, the moon of Jupiter? I think it's, uh, they just say the moon, but then they may give other names, but that makes me think it's like different parts of the moon. Well, they isn't there a point where they're talking about Jupiter? Yeah, Jupiter. I'll admit, well, I drifted. Well, that's okay. Here's what I think. Oh, I know. I think that's the, other, the point. No. Here's where I think the other piece of information that is in that opening, not opening that middle, I guess, the second part. Well, the, well, the beginning is kind of like an, it's like a prologue. Almost. Yeah. Like it's almost, and it's also very long. Yeah, all that today you would make all of that. I mean, you wouldn't use that today, but uh, you could <laughs> you would do all the same yeah, stuff. Is, it's not, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no comparable. Nobody could get away with making this. Maybe like Christopher Nolan could get away with making. The closest is like um, Paul Thomas Anderson's like prologue in Magnolia. You could go. You could cut that out. I love that prologue. That whole. Like, that's like a story. This is oh. like that. 
this is like this is a this is a series of establishing shots. Like yeah. it was straight up the volume of establishing shots was extraordinary. But the piece of information that I think is in that that section that we're talking about is that the other country that he runs into is like, hey, we heard something's going weird and they wouldn't let us dock in Jupiter or where it was. So it's almost like but that but that's the but then later he says that's the ruse they've come up with to not let people know that they've found an alien ship. That's what it was. You're right. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So it was all just one piece of information. And the the amount of time that scene, that awkward lounge scene, although I was relieved to hear human beings speak, and then I regretted it almost as soon as it started happening. But I was like, oh, this is a movie where people talk. Because I believe it's 25 minutes before there's a line of dialogue. Um, and they, was, they, really, to be fair, though, there was a, there was two female characters in that group of, of people from the other other country, and they weren't talking about an ex boyfriend. So that's yeah. great. This, so it passes really the Bechdel test. It's really positive information. It certainly does not, but it is. You know, it's, it's listen. The great thing about when you go through like, if, like I was trying to think by the end because by the like, wow, that third act, holy. <laughs> get to it but by the end i was like what is the thread like what's this about like like i feel like stanley kubrick hates people so much and he hates every aspect of being a human being so whether you're saying that we were poisoned because like what is the ultimate thesis of this movie is that were we poisoned from the beginning by alien life like when we were still monkeys is that kind of the implication of like that alien structure or whatever the fuck it is that like that they discover and then they discover weapons and then they discover violence like i feel like that's the the idea is that like they poisoned us and then we keep going into the future and then create like technology that will turn on us and then uh that then we discover an alien again and we we're forced to repeat the cycle because we deserve this we will once again be poisoned by alien life i mean that's here's the thing there's no answer because spielberg not spielberg kubrick refused refused to ever give one um, I think you, I mean, you could, you know, spend a lot right, of time online like, like, reading you, various. Oh yeah. And I'm never straight up, never going to do that. Cause like, ultimately yeah. I feel like this is like a f- intro to astronomy wank fest kind of like fake philosophy. Like none of this holds up to any scrutiny here. There's yeah. no thought process behind this. There's a kind of like experience of nihilism and like and a self-obsession that I can find in the doctor. But by the time you get to him, he's not even the main character. Like structurally it's a disaster zone and it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's right? gorgeous. Like, it's super That's beautiful. the one thing. And even Arthur C. Clarke said at one point, he's like, if you can if you can walk out of this movie and explain it to somebody in a way that makes sense, we have failed because our goal was to create more questions than we did answers. Which is I started great. feeling halfway through, and it really zoned in during the like the endlessness of that, like going through the what's that sequence? I don't know how to describe this properly, but like when he's going into like right after the alien encounter at the beginning of the third act, and it's like the colors coming at you. I don't know. Like it's been repeated in so many movies. Like I was like, oh, it looks like Contact. It looks like, and there's so many movies along the way. But when that started. And then I realized how long it was going to go on for. I was like, this is like an installation piece. This is like an Andy Warhol movie. Like yeah. it's almost designed to be half paid attention to. You shouldn't pay that much attention to it because nothing's happening. 
It didn't strip up so much of the time. Nothing is happening. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the nihilism. Like, it makes me think. Uh, I mean, first of all, my thought is like, I don't even know if that structure exists or if it's just the concept of like, once we created tools, we destroyed ourselves. Uh, like, tools were always going to end in our. Right, but it's right after they find that alien thing. Well, right? that's so the step. But in the, in in the when they're apes, it's like they discover the. Like you said, they discover the alien thing, and then they kind of discover violence. And they start right. Well, the muddy thing other. is like, so, yeah. Well, the muddy part is is the the violence is technology beget the violence, or does the violence beget this like addition of tools, right? Because like the tool seems to figure quite prominently in the victory, in the violent victory in me. So like the tool seems to be attached to the question is: is it attached to the alienness or the humanness? And the answer is like, oh my god, I don't, I don't fucking care. So, like, I mean, holy. Yeah, this movie is so annoying in so many ways. Like it is one of those when I when I I looked it up in the middle and I was like, oh, it's because I was like, when did Star Wars happen? When did this happen? And this is 1968, and that made so much more of it make sense. Where I was like, this is very much 1968. Like this is a structural free for all. This is the idea of like a thing that I hate in all movies. Of like, I don't, I'm not on your drug trip. Don't take me there in real time. I'm not interested in like having your zoned out. I, I didn't do any Molly. Like, don't show me. Like, I well, that was your mistake. Yes, yeah, always, always. But this feels like you can't replicate this acid trip. It's so in- it's so intense. It's so thought out. And then like that third act is to me like an example of this movie just pushing itself too far. It's like, quit while you're ahead. Because it starts to look like garbage by the end of it. By like just the weird exposed Grand Canyon and the eyeball and like, guys, enough. Like it doesn't look good anymore. And it's gone on for like 10 minutes. Yeah. It's so indulgent. And I can, anyway, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that this is the last film that came out before we actually landed on the moon. Um, Wait, of course, that makes sense. It's 1968, right? And the moon landing is 69. That's crazy. And that's why uh, Kubrick is linked to the concept of like the right, fake, of it being faked because they're like, oh, they used uh, technology that he used to make the movie and they used props from the movie and... The shots inside the ship when they when he does the um, the gravity stuff like what like the spinning yeah like the spinning gravity room like there's amazing there's That's amazing insane. stuff in there I just like imagine if there had been like a movie wrapped around <laughs> you know, like a story that would have been so cool because like I feel like and I guess maybe this is the problem with watching because I, I feel like the sixties is a weird and and even the seventies too is a weird era where movie structure just fell apart. And I think it was a reaction to the over overly structured kind of like 30s, 40s, and even 50s. Yeah, it's it the like, counterculture, right? Yeah, for for sure, it's a counterculture thing. But like, but it really is a time when it's like, where's the movie? Like, what's the story? Like, there's no. And I feel like for our brains, who are back to used to looking for stories, I watch a movie like 2001, and I had so much time waiting for a story to kick in that by the time it did, I was like, oh right, this isn't the point even. But Right as, as soon as I was about to, I, I took some notes, and right as soon as I was about to write how uncharismatic the actors were, I was like, their scene where they're talking about, like, when they're conspiring against Hal 
is the only scene I think I paid attention to with human beings in this whole movie. Where I was like, oh, I just realized I listened to the whole thing. Like, I believed them. They were good. It was all one shot. It was really intense. And I was like, it was really the moment where I was like, these two boring. And I was like, oh. And I really started listening to them. And I was like, good for you. It's a good scene. Like, the movie is very all over the place. And in terms of uh, its interest in keeping tension as well. Or like there's times where you feel like, I guess the Kubrick of the future that would move forward, who is like a tension monster. And then this, I almost feel like he would have rather, he should have made this movie with Peter Sellers as the voice of Hal so that it becomes a full on comedy to like mm. really fuck with your expectation of tone there. Cause I feel like if Peter Sellers was Hal, the movie would, uh, run the risk of being so much more enter well it would have been so much more entertaining at the very fucking least because it's not interested in entertaining you at all no it's interested in like it's you know to your credit it's like i think it's the kind of movie that i don't go back and revisit of kubrick's because i'm like there's a i mean there's center there's people that just swear by the brilliance of this movie and i i'm on your camp where i'm like you just want it to be brilliant or it's like, you know, it's supposed to be brilliant. And I don't, I don't think you can sit back and like explain it without having your own personal interpretation. It reminds me of like the closest modern version of this that I can think of that a movie that I hated. And I think like speaks to the nihilism that you're talking about of Kubrick uh, was funny games. Like uh, Michael Haneke's funny games. And it made me go, I don't know. Have you seen funny games? Yeah, I actually love funny. Like, I have a complete well, opposite response. To I have to rewatch it because, like, I think when I was watching it, I was like, when it gets to that point, and spoiler alert if you haven't seen Funny Games yet, uh, you don't get a spoiler alert for this because you're listening to a podcast where people talk about a movie they just watched. So screw you if you think that you're safe. It, you are not. But Funny Games, I will give a spoiler alert for. There's a move, moment in the movie where it's like, you know, it's about home invasion which is my most terrifying version of horror movies anyway because i'm like for me that's the most realistic thing that can happen and that terrifies the fuck out of me home invasion horror movies are i hate them and the fact that i love them because they're the most terrifying for me but when in that movie uh for those who don't care about spoilers and haven't seen it there's a moment where like they're you know they're they're being they're, they're home invaded they're being tortured and then all of a sudden like you know our heroes quote unquote you know, find a way to flip the switch and kind of like start to take over their captors. And then the captors basically find a remote control in the room they're in, literally a remote control and stop the movie and rewind it and change the course of things. And that made me, and I know that's the point that made me so angry because <laughs> I'm like, all you want to do is just flip the switch on purpose and there's a part of me that, like, now I think I would watch and go, oh, that's brilliant, and I love that you mess with my expectation, and that, of course, I want the heroes to win, and you're not going to let me do that. But I guess part of me was just like, just do that. Just don't let the heroes win, as opposed to, like, giving me that and then taking it away from me. It felt so cruel. Uh, yeah, and now, I mean, I as I'm explaining, it, now, and as I'm explaining, I'm like, I'm an idiot. It sounds brilliant. But at the time, my, no, my no, experience no, watching still- it, I get, I get your experience watching it. Like what I would say is a yes, Hanukkah is cruel, but also b like 
the difference in these two movies to me is like funny games is a movie about movies. It's a movie that's mm. messing. It's just there to mess with your expectations of cinema. And his view of cinema is that it is exploitive and everything is a horror movie. And I, the director is a fascist because he's always in control. And I would say that the thing he's parodying is kind of the Kubrick's of the world where he's mm. like, look at this fascist in control of everything. Like there's not a spontaneous there's no, this is the opposite of Robert Altman. This is the opposite of like any kind of spontaneous cinema where any freedom is about, this is about control, about yeah. total control. And, and I don't think it's about movies. I think it's about, I think that Kubrick's ego is such that he thinks he's making a revolutionary thing about the human experience to existentialism, to space, to the potential of, uh, uh, life on earth and his answer is that he hates the human experience and he values nothing from it he thinks it's poisoned from the outset and or he thinks that it's uh primitive and revolting and yet he fetishizes this uh, classical music and this kind of like haute couture and like even this kind of fashion stuff that he's doing so he's full of conflicts but he's also so clearly full of like snobbery and uh hatred of people well and it kind of like it, it circles back to the conversation we were having before where you brought up like this idea of like how people do the uh, the dark side of oz and have the and, and how you could just like put and i said you can put any album against that if you're high enough it'll work and there's that i think when you look at all the different interpretations online for 2001 if there's a, a minute theory you have, someone has written an essay and a thought piece on oh, it. Oh, like that. Oh, and there, there's a Reddit article about that thought piece. You know, so it's just like, I think you can go down any rabbit hole you want to, and you could justify how that works to that point where it's just like, and so I think for some people, like there's, well, there's beauty in that because it's endlessly, uh, it's endlessly discussable and there's no right answer. But then the, then it's also like, well, no, it was designed that way. And so therefore it's like, what is it? If it's meant to have no answer, it's like I think of it like a pin, I think of it like a video game that where yeah right that's it. But I think of it like not understand it. I know I was explaining to my son the video games in like the eighties where it was just like there was no level two and you the whole design was just the pump quarters in it, and that's what this movie is. It's like it's just designed to pump quarters into it. There's no level two. It's like you're not getting any. You're not getting past it. You're just going to be like, well, this is what it is. you're going to try so hard and like no, there's no level totally. two. <laughs> It, um, it did really make me think of like, it's so funny because it really did. I, I recently rewatched Alien and it made me think of Alien a lot because like obviously a lot, clearly a lot of sci-fi movies aped elements of this. Like the visuals are so impressive. Like um, uh, there were, I saw Gravity, I saw uh, Contact, I saw Star Wars, I saw tons of stuff in there. But Alien, it, what, what I love about, what I, and what I loved about rewatching Alien, and this is a funny thing to say about Ridley Scott, who is, probably a straight up fascist like a, a guy that shot um uh, commercials in south africa during apartheid in the middle of a boycott like that's what he made his fortune doing was i don't know if you know that about ridley scott i did not know that about ridley scott he's a cool dude yeah he made coca-cola and nike commercials in the 1980s in south africa during the international boycott of south africa so anyway, clearly a super a super good guy. But what I loved about what Alien did to sci-fi is 
creating, even if it's fake, because it probably was, but creating a working class sci-fi environment, like where things don't work all the time and you hit computer screens, like people still need wrenches and doors, like everything seems rusty and dirty. The complete, like when I look at these sci-fi movies, I feel the same about Christopher Golan, by the way. I'm always like, who is cleaning these ships? Like someone's got to be in there. There's someone's no in there twice there's, a day. There's twice no, a day. There's no dust. Isn't that how it works in space? It's like there's it's all sucked there's in. No dust, there's no prints. There's no smudges. There's no nothing. I was like, where are these magical self-cleaning? Which is what I love about that alien ship is that it looks like what it would look like, which is keep your shoes on. No one's walking barefoot through this thing. Holy shit, it's dirty. Yeah. Wow. Have you seen the movie Moon? The Sam Rockwell movie? Uh, yes, yes, yes. I see, Moon's like a version of this in a sense, but I'm like, I really dug Moon when I saw it. I've only seen it once. But I remember Moon's, really enjoying like, again, it. Like, it's like you added a story to it. Like, Moon has a story. <laughs> like, and Sam Rockwell is charismatic as hell. Absolutely. But I, I think that even like in this version of it, if Peter Sellers played the doctor, play, forget how, if he played the doctor, what would he do with this? He'd come into the movie an hour into it and he'd be like, wait, another movie starting? And it's just the only thing they seem to have in common is space and the loosest of threads of like some alien thing. And then the best thing in the movie is the computer turning on like the, the robot turning on the on the humans but even that's like this weird 45 minute bubble in the middle of the second act. And then like, it's gone as fast as it happened. And when it ended, I was like, Oh, the movie must be over. And I was like, 30 more minutes. Like what's happening? movie? Like, why, what do you, t- what do you got to tell me? Like, that's when Kubrick switched drugs. He went from marijuana then, to acid. And then, then he did some LSD. Exactly. Yeah. And now you've got to, yeah. yeah. It's that, what's that CIA mind control experiment called? The LSD? What do they call that? Fucking, oh, oh uh, the Kool-Aid acid test? No, the, the one that, that, Yeah, that, that's part. That's part. No, the, the one where this the guy. You'll have to cut this out because I'm gonna just. Uh, there's, oh there's, no! There's a this, famous fake thing. Where, not fake thing. There's a. Oh my God, a story where a CIA agent threw himself out a window in a hotel room. Um, off like at like twenty stories up, something like that, and eventually it was declared uh, because he was part of these CI experiments where he had been given LSD, uh, like and he didn't know it, but he was an agent, he was a scientist there. But they call it's a famous name. That uh, what's his face who did the Thin Blue Line, the documentary filmmaker Errol Morris, Errol Morris. did a Netflix series all about this, about this these CIA experiments with LSD, and yeah. I did not. Like I, it was on my list to watch. I didn't get around to it, and then I didn't feel bad about the name it. Of the, the name of the operation is famous anyway, and I just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see uh, the remake version that you do of this with Peter Sellers in every role. He's oh, the monkeys. Like, first of all, as soon as you say that, I'm like, someone's going to do that, but with Andy Circus, which will be a nightmare. Mm. Because I don't want to see him play every part in anything, anything. But yeah, no, like if you Eddie Murphy this, I think you could. It could be kind of hilarious. Like, and also just trim a trim a modest fifty five minutes out of the movie. Just <laughs> trim it down. But like, if you start with the monkeys, I kind of feel like Mel Brooks is almost satirized. Like, it almost feels like a Mel Brooks opening. You know, like to like History of the World Part One or something like that. Like a movie where like he's got a monkey opening for no reason for his space movie. The movie everyone knows is a space movie. Walking the door, 
start with some hominids. Sorry, I looked it up. I looked up its Wikipedia page before we started. Well, that's the ego. That's the ego of of Kubrick going, you've seen all the advertisement, you know what this movie's about, and then sit down for 20 minutes and watch this, and everyone's going, am I in the right? I'm sure, how many people do you think went, am I in the right movie? First of all- the two minutes of black that I texted you about, like when I started watching for the people listening, when I started watching the movie, I immediately texted you and was like, is this supposed to be what's going on? Cause it, there was music playing. Yeah. And I, I wrote back, he, he, he. And then, and then when you're like, it's two minutes in, I'm like, Oh shit, that feels too long. But no, yeah, that was, exactly. but it, <laughs> I was like, when you were with the he, I was like, I still don't get it. I don't know if this, I was like, is this because you think it's funny or because you think I'm kidding? Cause I'm not kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> Cause I was like, Oh, you, if you think that's the weirdest thing about this, you're, right. you're in for it. Which is, which is also fair, which is also fair, but like a break of two and a half minutes of black, like it's an over, right it's like literally an overture before the opera i guess i guess if you think about this movie as an opera it actually makes more sense it was an intermission too right in in a movie that's not long enough to really warrant an intermission yeah but like lawrence of arabia i went to i don't know like that's not the intermission is not the weirdest part like but because it's really like it's an abandonment of story this movie like it's just a bailing on the idea of telling any form of a conventional narrative story. There's no yarn to be spun here. No, it's, it's a, just idea after idea after idea. And it wants you to thread it together with no confirmation whether or not you're... I don't think it gives a fuck. No. I don't think no. it gives a fuck. I think it has the confidence of a mediocre white man and it does not give a shit. It's like, these are my ideas. What do you think of me? You're yeah. Like, I, I guess so. You yeah, got that, a lot of money. And it's technically, again, like, like it, it, when I did see it, it was 1968, I was like, wow, it is, it is gorgeous and it is impressive. There's almost no, up until the end, up until the third act, there's no clunky visual effects. It looks spectacular. Yeah, you know, we get into the 80s acid trip stuff. It's just like, that's when it's like, oof, this, okay, it's 1968. Yeah. But other than that... There's stuff you so go in there. How all the state stuff, and that's like garbage. I mean, like, or whatever. It's like some kind of, it's supposed to be transportational. I don't know what it's supposed to be, but like, it's not supposed to be realistic. The stuff that's supposed to be realistic is amazing and looks realistic. Like, it looks like, I mean, it looks like it could have been made in 1990, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, especially when you realize it's like 10 years before Star Wars. You know, it's like, exactly. Shit. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. when I was like, oh, wow, wow, wow. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think thought, I, was, I thought this was like seventy four, maybe, and Star Wars was seventy seven. Like I thought they were more cousins, but they're not. They're not even no. the same generation of movies. No. Yeah, they're a generation later. I think what when this movie came out, and I had to look it up. I don't know, but I can only imagine that what made this movie catch on and become like the cult hit because it wasn't a huge success when it, when it first came out. But I think it was what you're talking about there. It's like people were seeing visuals they had never seen before. In a oh, way that totally. it's like they had no idea, but it's also, but then so, so it was appeasing like all the sci fi nerds who were like, oh my god, that's amazing. But then it was also appeasing all the counterculture guys who were just like, I don't want a story, I don't, I'm sick of the man like forcing a structure on me. And so it was like, it, it came at like this perfect window of time where it was impressive to these various camps of film people. You keep that burp in, too, by the way. Pardon me. What's that? You can keep that burp in. I oh, great. I, so I think it was like that. And then over time, I think everyone has just kept up that feeling that it's like, well, it's supposed to be brilliant. And so therefore, I think it still is. Where I know when I first saw it the first time, I was just like, what am I watching? 
Well, I think that I think that it's also an example of like movies matter to you when you saw them, you know, like mm-hmm. the, when they impact you and what your experience is, what you're bringing to the table, you know, like, uh, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of my favorite movies are movies that I, uh, they came out during my kind of adolescence and early 20s or and or kind of fall into a grouping of filmmakers that I then went and explored, uh, you know, in that way. Uh, because that was when I was most eager to absorb new voices and ideas. And like, uh, and I think that, I think Kubrick was very much the kind of like Christopher Nolan of his time in the sense that every time he dropped a movie, it was a huge deal. Um, and they own, there's only 10, like maybe he's even more like a Tarantino. I don't even know because there's, yeah. uh, how many? It's, there's it's a like combination. 12, it's a, it's a small amount. I mean, Tarantino for sure models him after and have Kubrick where the idea is Kubrick only put out a small amount and that's what Tarantino is doing. Right. It's like, and, well, and, also he's like, but it's not even just a small amount. It's like every five years. It's like, there's a long time between movies to make them an event. And sometimes that event is Barry Linden. I feel like this one's a bit more like, I guess there's more bang for your buck here. I gotta say, Barry Lyndon was one of the ones I hadn't seen, and I just watched it in the last year or two. I liked Barry Lyndon way more than I thought I would because I mean, it was. I it was, was a teenager. Here's the thing, because I was not. I was expecting. I, it was also that expectation was the opposite of this. Or going, I'm going to Barry Lyndon, expecting it to be the most boring homework of a movie, and I was shocked by how light and funny it was in moments. That it really kept me going from that. I mean, so, the comedy stylings of Ryan O'Neill. There's no, there's no, there's no doubt about it. But yeah, no, but just because I was expecting it to be just so dry and so boring. Yeah, I did. I, I didn't. I, I I actually recall the same thing. Like I have again. I haven't seen it since I was like sixteen or seventeen. But I do remember being like when I finished Berlin and being like. Berlin is not that bad. Why do people hate Berlin so much? Um, yeah, like I thought it was vaguely enjoyable. But this is when I saw this was like in high school, I had a friend who was obsessed with Clockwork Orange. And so I watched that with him and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool and weird. And I'm like, what else has this guy made? And that's when I did the deep dive and I watched uh, Full Metal Jacket and I watched this and Full Metal Jacket. I was I loved the first half, the first time I saw it and hated the second half or was just bored by the second half. And then when I got to this one, I was just like, I think I pretended that I, it was amazing and great because of the way everyone was talking about it or like, so what was it? but I, I was very impressed by all the stuff that we were just talking about, the visuals and the technology. But I think story-wise, it was just like, you know, I get it because I'm a cool, smart teenager kid, but it's like, I walked away. I mean, there's nothing to get here. There's no story. Like, it's just, uh, it's not, you're not missing anything. You're just, there's just nothing to hang your hat on. Uh, I know what you mean. Like I, I remember full metal jacket more as like a series of threes. I feel like it's not like, sorry, I just mean in three parts. Like yeah. there's like the screening part, there's like the base. And then there's that final endless battle sequence that feels like its own kind of movie where they just keep getting sent in. But, um, I don't know. I remember having this very, like I grew up with my parents were, my parents were communists and like I had this very, there were, I, we, there were so many movies about Vietnam and like my dad would like rail on them structurally and he'd rail on them about like, that they, like he just, 
he was like, there's never a fucking Vietnamese person. This This is all about this like American experience, this colonial, fundamentally colonial American experience, because all it privileges and all it discusses is the trauma, whether you're a good guy or bad guy, of being a white dude in Vietnam. And the Vietnamese people are body parts and extras there. And when they are there, they're either, you know, they're they're the obvious um, underclass archetypes, prostitutes and uh, narcs and, you know, uh, or enemies or people like that. And um, I remember Full Metal Jacket being like, in my mind, the kind of anti, like, bit, like ironically, again, weirdly, the anti-fascist version of Oliver Stone movies, which were so jingoistic and so insane. And he was like the major voice of Vietnam, like that kind of platoon movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Full Metal Jacket was interesting because at least it, it acknowledged, I mean, but it's just more Kubrick, the endlessness of the violence and the end, like that third act of it is just about like, shove them all in. They're all just going to die. It's like one at a time. They don't yeah. care. Like we're sacrificing these boys up at, at the altar. It still, of course, only discusses the American experience in a war, which is, and the way the movies have been made about the Vietnam War, it's, it's remarkable how little Vietnam there is in these, uh, any of these experiences. Yeah. But I think that's that generation, and Kubrick is that generation. Uh, it's yeah. like, yeah. To that point, though, can you imagine, like, Americans doing their version of the Vietnam experience and what that would I don't look like? Watch, I don't want to watch – I haven't watched the new Spike Lee movie yet. I don't want to – like, as soon as I found out it was about the Vietnam – I straight up will not watch anything about the Vietnam. Without spoiling anything about it, Vietnam is essentially just, like, a spice to be added to it. Um, uh, it's just always the same. Although that said, uh, here's the thing: based on what you're talking about, I think you might be interested in it because there's aspects of it where it's just like, I mean, they don't necessarily come off as like good guys or heroes in this. Uh, no, I know. From my understanding is it's just the same. There's just this erasure of the Vietnamese. I don't need to watch yeah. any other version of Americans dealing with their trauma from Vietnam. You know, like I just, I can't, I, I just, it, it's the same. It's part of like the, I don't know what's going on right now. And like, but it makes the repercussions of like enough with this story. Fuck, yeah. we've heard it. Tell a different story. You know? what, what you do get though in, in, in this, the, the new Spike Lee movie that I will say to his credit to what you're talking about is I'm that sure you, it's good at most likely. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But it's just like, cause it's about like these guys that were in Vietnam and then they come back yeah. like, year as you know yeah the way later and when they come back like they're not welcomed as heroes it's like part of the thing is like they're they're coming back and remembering this experience and some of it is that is like the tourism industry is all like yeah come on in but there's a lot there's enough people that are like fuck you it's like what you did to our country is unacceptable and the fact that so that in a way he's kind of T- dealing with what you talk about it's still the american point of view of that i mean that's but, the thing is the narrative is the privilege right like yeah. the story is the privilege it's not like discussing the things because then it becomes like a lesson and a finger wagging thing it's like stop telling the story of the american trauma of vietnam like the trauma i i was like when i was you know, 17 we spent two months in vietnam with my family and we traveled up and down it and it was 1997 and it was like it was still touristy but like not the way it is now and the experience of being thought of as American, which you basically are when you travel as Canadian, was complicated down there um, because it varied like from place to place and from region to region, like how you get treated. 
but like just seeing things like their museums about the war and they call it the war of American aggression because the communists are great at renaming wars. Um, that's what the Russians call world war two. Do you know the, the second war of German aggression? Isn't that a great way of calling world war two? I, I love anytime you're in a communist country, straight up, look at what they call wars. You think, you know, what are called. You'd be like, wait, what? So there's always some angle. There's always some like, yeah, it's great. But yeah, the Great War of American Aggression. Um, and that, but, it, but that's what it was. And this is what, like, I don't know how we got off on this, but like, this is what that point of view feels like. It's just like how alienating life is for me as a powerful white man. And like the thing that he's most worried about is losing his power to a robot of his own creation. And like, if you think about what life was like in 1968 for the average human being, there's no relationship to that. So it is like, it's unprivileged, you know, kind of take. And God bless. Like we also need our dreamers and our space explorer people. And I don't know. It's funny. But but it it doesn't, I'll tell you this straight up. It doesn't move me. There's mm. nothing moving in this movie. I never got emotional. In this oh, movie. it's any reason. And these days in quarantine, I'll get emotional like fucking any. <laughs> really yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's it's emotionally antiseptic the way the visuals are. Like the way you talk about how nothing gets dirty and everything's clean. It's like it's and just that tone of how Hal speaks. Like that's the tone. That's the. But Hal's the, the most emotional character in the movie, kind of. Like Hal has like the largest emotional arc. I mean, Hal goes like Hal's super manipulative, Hal's super passive aggressive, and then Hal's like, "Oh my god, I'm dying! Oh my god, you're pulling me apart!" Like Hal articulates more emotional inner life than any human being, and I think that's a point too than any human being in the movie. Like he certainly articulates more emotional inner life than um, the Doctor. Right. Yeah. Well, that's it. Like cautious about how in the conspiracy phase is like that's it. Yeah, I mean, and you know, if if you go with the theory that it's like your own creation will destroy you because it realizes that the problem is you, it's like you know, it's it's like the Age of Ultron in Avengers, where it's just like they create. We want to solve peace on Earth. It's like, well, you guys are the problem, so I'll destroy you. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, well, but I feel like it's a combination of that and then like the alien trick of like, oh no, the robot's been programmed to privilege the program over the human, like m- accomplish this mission, even though the mission itself is very elusive, what mission he's on and what the, like, why Hal decides that he needs to, I, the whole thing, like for a movie with very little story, it doesn't make sense. The story itself is like, barely keep it like it's like the thinnest of uh, bridges keeping it together well it all becomes like techno babble and it's like so when they say something important you're like is this important or is this just like him saying hi to his daughter again where it's just like totally that was a nice character moment but no it wasn't and i didn't get anything from it it was weird it was weird it would just reminded me of how emotionally disconnected i was like oh this is a nightmare Yes, daddy. Like, I was like, ugh. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I think, I look at that and I'm like, they're trying to, like, show you what the future looks like and give you a beat of that. Because otherwise you don't have a context for, like, what is Earth like in the future? What are we doing, you know? 
Did you notice this on the dude in the beginning part thing after Post Monkeys, but original space, whatever act we're calling that? I, what I love is that the guy on his flight to the moon, wherever he was going, I was assuming he's to the moon, it looked like Air Canada flights. I was like, they really got that right. Of like every seat has a screen. Nailed you know that. Isn't that crazy? Nailed I was that. like, no, it looks like Air Canada. Yeah, and I like the joke of I mean, I guess and most other airplanes. I don't know why I'm specified, but I feel like Air Canada was the first airline I knew that did that. That like they put them in the back of the they were still coming out in the middle for a long time. I know, it'd be funny because like my son would watch this movie and be like, Oh, that's what they that's what airplanes look like. I'm like, You don't understand, like that's <laughs> exactly this is before airplanes like still go go club. They looked like uh it looked like Austin Powers. Yeah, when I was watching the first time I flew on a plane, like everyone was watching the same movie on a shitty projector. You Dude, know, for years, for ye- that was I thought it was a revolution when you didn't when you didn't have to like, and you prayed that you were the right, the worst position to be in was the one where the TV was right there, like the closest to you in your neck. Either you were too far to look at the TV ahead of you, or you had to bend your neck all the way up yeah. to look at that TV. Yeah, that was like that was when. I still remember when people smoked on planes. Yeah. God bless. Recycled air. Uh, It's funny. No one smokes in this movie. I guess Kubrick didn't. I I guess he was famously hated that, didn't he? Is he like, am I making that up? Is he like a Donald Sutherland, someone that like won't be around smokers? I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's funny that for 1968, no one's smoking, which is, which is funny. Because one of the other great things about Alien is that everyone smokes inside a spaceship. Yeah. People oh, have to be smoking in Full Metal Jacket because that's such a, a thing of the world. No, war. that's Vietnam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They must be. And in The Killing, I swear, there's like a, a guy smoking. But Oh, well, could, I mean, Dr. Strangelove famously smokes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that might be something that he adapted later on yeah. in life. Peter Sellers is so good at Dr. Strangelove. It's such a, like, balls-to-the-wall, revolutionary, three-handed performance. It's so, for anybody who is listening out there and is looking for something, and it's so funny. Like, it is as funny, it's just, it's hilarious. I laughed out loud all the way through it. Yeah. The one thing I will say about this movie, and the one thing that, like, I admire about Kubrick in general, is that it's like, however you feel about each of his individual efforts, when he swings, he swings big. And he's oh, going absolutely. for something of his own, whether or not you, you connect to it. It's a, he doesn't give a shit. So it's like for Strange Love compared to this, it's like they're too. And to, to know, like you have to look at like the technical aspects to know that it's the same filmmaker because he's playing with different genres, he's playing with different styles. Totally agree. Uh, but that's totally what, agree. even when it's not uh, great, it's some. There's parts of it that you're like, well, that's amazing. Oh, I mean, he's, you're, you're right that like when he's done with an idea, he's done with an idea and he moves on to something completely different, except for the consistency of just hating being alive. But like, I mean, like, like the shining and this have nothing in common. I think that they're, I think it's this and then the shining right for him. This is after Clockwork Orange. They're in very close proximity. Uh, But I think that, yeah, it's just like, it's Clockwork Orange 2001, the shining, right? I had to look it up. Shining was an a. Uh, yeah, it was, it was the Shining was after this for sure. No, oh, the Shining is for sure after this. But I mean, like, is there anything between? Is there anything between this and the Shining? Um, moments away to the internet. Clockwork Orange. I think Clockwork Orange is before two thousand one. The an- the internet will answer these questions. Yeah, uh, the it was uh, Barry Lyndon. Sorry, it was. Strange. Oh, right. Barry Lyndon. It was. Lyndon. 
It was Lolita, Strange Love, 2001, Clockwork Orange, Berlin, and The Shining. That's the order. How's 2001's before Clockwork Orange? Yeah, because The Shining's 80. I thought so. Like, yeah, the Shining's way yeah, later. Shining, no, I, I just was like, no, I, Barry Lyndon makes sense, but I was questioning whether or not... Uh, no, Barry Lyndon's after Clockwork Orange. Barry Lyndon's 75. No, no, I'm, no, I'm just saying that Clockwork Orange is after this. I thought the 2001 was after Clockwork Orange. Not like, forget about Barry Lyndon, but I thought that, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, this is his follow-up to 2001. <laughs> wow. Which is uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting choice. Still in the kind of future, the horrible, horrible future. Yeah. Where gangs of milk-loving young men terrorize women. Yeah, I think now the only one I'm just looking at is filmography. I think the only ones I haven't seen now are Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire. Which are... I think those are TV movies, aren't they? Probably. Well, and that's probably why. I'm like finding copies of those. I don't think they're available widely. I'm not sure, but I don't think they're available widely. I think the same person that has the rights to paranormal activity... Not, no, what were you saying? The uh, Final Destination 3 and 4... I have the same oh, rights. they are, get in touch with me. <laughs> Come on, I'll pay. You will pay. Uh, will any, pay. any final thoughts on, on this? Um, no, thank you for uh, inviting me to be a part of this. Thanks for making me watch 2001. Now I never have to do it again. And now I can say that I've done it and I can... Stop lying at parties with people. Not that I'll ever go to another party, but I- imagining a world in which I will socialize again, um, I will be able to confidently say, I've seen that movie and I don't like it. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's you, okay. Don't, you don't have to come on. Uh, people, a couple people have been worried about that. They're like, what if I don't like the movie we watch? I'm like, that's totally okay. And I'll, and I'll point them to this as a perfect example of that. <laughs> Oh, I, I agree. You can use this as a model. And I would just like to add that I listened to uh, part of your uh, podcast um, with um, uh, my friend Aaron Abrams and when you did uh, Sweet Smile of Success, yeah. which is a masterpiece of a movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. Like I couldn't do that podcast with you guys because I have seen it so many times. But one thing I wanted to add, and I don't know if you got to this, but did you know that like Burt Lancaster was kind of one of the original independent producer actors? He was like one of the first guys that became a producer and like took charge of his own image. And Sweet Smile of Success was one of the first movies where he did it. Like he came up in the old school studio system and he watched like United Artists get formed with like Mary Pickford and folks like that. And he didn't want to be a part of a larger entity, but he became like kind of a role model of essentially what like Leonardo DiCaprio does or more famously, it was Warren Beatty that called attention. He was like, I'm just doing what Burt Lancaster did. And like he started like buying up books and buying up scripts like for himself to uh anyway yeah. i love bro well, i don't think we got into that we, we didn't also I, circus yeah i think we knew we referenced the fact that he was like a producer on it or something and were and theorized about that but all of us hadn't seen it so i think we hadn't deep dived into that but that's uh that's, that's no, he, fun. He's, an, he's an interesting he, burt lancaster is an interesting actor and an interesting dude like what he did also a super big progressive like big lefty um, hired a lot of blacklisted people. I don't know why I'm on this. I because I listened to your thing before, but I love Sweet Smell of Success. Um, if you want to have, if you want another one where we we tear apart a movie, check out 1941. Where, uh, Spielberg. Oh, the Spielberg movie. 
Yeah, we. Oh, uh, that's, a that's a garbage dump. Oh, that's a straight but up we dump. we almost we practically mystery science theater that movie because <laughs> I, I was just like, what is the like watching one of your heroes just like fail so miserably was such oh, a, it's, a treat. It's just the opposite. It's like you never fail bigger than when you're not funny, right? And it's just like you're just watching a train wreck of a not. I'm like, is this supposed to be a good? Well, also, time? it's like you are surrounded by the funniest people in the world in this movie. How is it not funny? How is it? How is it just so not funny? Yeah. Big problem. All yeah. right. Well, well, thank you for, for spending your evening, <laughs> and we'll we'll do it again at some point. Great. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for 2001, A Space Odyssey. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.